Hello, this is Father Mike Walker, and you are listening to Father Mike's Bible Study Podcast. It is a Bible study from a mainstream Catholic perspective. The whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation will be covered. The purpose is to give the listener a working knowledge of the Bible and a basis for further study and prayer. We hope you enjoy this, and may God bless you as you study and read the inspired Word of God. All right, so I'm going to go into Joshua. So before I do, though, we're going to do another little overview on just some times and dates. Just to give you an idea of what we're talking about again. Okay, so from 1100 to 750 B.C., that was the uh, Greek Dark Ages. So, you know, like in classical Greek, we think of that as ancient. And classical Greek is in the 300s and 400s. Um, BC. And so the first Greek civilization before it went into decline uh, was before that, so like 1100 or so. And so it's in that kind of time period. But Phoenicians, who they're the ones I talked about earlier that were like where Lebanon is today, and uh, they're the ones that developed the alphabet. Uh, they're the ones that had a pretty advanced civilization, and they went and started colonizing different areas in the Mediterranean including as far away as Carthage, which became a Phoenician satellite city. Eventually, Carthage would have that war with Rome that you may have heard about, the Punic Wars. So, But anyway, that was all going on during that time, the 1200s to 875. Between 1300 and 1000 BC, the Assyrian Empire, which was north of the Babylonian Empire, which is like the northern part of Iraq today, uh, the Assyrians were so- somewhat weak. And uh, because they were somewhat weak, they no longer had the power and influence over the areas around them. Egypt, between 1069 and 517, was also weak. And so this is what I'm talking about when there was a bit of a power vacuum in the area. And that power vacuum enabled Israel to become established and eventually for King David and King Solomon to have some rule and power and authority that they wouldn't have been able to have if the Assyrians and the the Egyptians and the Babylonians were stronger. And so that power vacuum created the opportunity that the Israelites needed to resettle the land and have some power and autonomy in doing it. In 1193, Hittite Empire, that's in Turkey, they were weak as well. So the Hittites were in the north, the Egyptians in the south, and the Assyrians on the east... Um, Them all being weak, you know, created that power vacuum that they needed. And then between 1211 or 1000 BC, you know, that was the sea peoples that were raiding Egypt. And so they were coming in from different areas around Greece and uh, um, Turkey in that area. So they were coming down and they were raiding Egypt. So that's why one other reason why Egypt was weak. So during some of that time, So now you're going to see a little map of the 12 tribes. Because Joshua is a story about, okay, we've been on the east side of the Jordan River, and now it's time for the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan and to inherit the land that God promised them. And the different tribes, you can see where they ended up going. There's Benjamin, Ephraim, Dan. You'll notice Dan in two spots. So what happened with Dan is they started out down here, and then they moved north. All right, so down here, you've got Judah. You may wonder, where's Joseph? 
Well, poor Joseph got absorbed into Judah, basically. So Joseph originally had a small little space in here, but then Judah was just dominant, and so Joseph just kind of became part of the tribe of Judah down there. Reuben and Gad, this is what they call Manasseh. These are the east side of the uh, river. And so in the book of Joshua, they're getting ready to cross over, and they say, you know what, we kind of like this land over here. Can we just stay behind? And then Joshua says, well, yes, you can stay behind, but you have to, you have to go with us so we can go into the land and conquer and inherit it. All right, so after Moses, I mentioned Moses died. Before Moses died, he gave his authority to Joshua to lead the people. So between Joshua and Caleb, they were the two main uh, generals, so to speak, that would lead the people to inherit the land. The areas up north, Asher, Naphtali, um, Zebulun, you know, these are all the areas as well that these different tribes settled in. This area is not huge. And so we think of Israel as being this huge monstrous country because we hear so much about it. But it was like a 60-mile stretch. So you're talking about, like, for example, the distance between Roseburg and Grants Pass. You know, I mean, it's not, not a huge area that we're talking about. Um, but still, it's got a range of different uh, climates and, and areas. So the Dead Sea down here is very hot and dry and low. It's the lowest spot on earth, actually. And then up in this area, you've got the mountainous region. And this area can have like pine trees and mountains and hills and stuff. And that's, uh, you'll find in here where Jerusalem is. And you go north, here's the Jordan River. The Jordan River is very uh, lush. The, uh, uh, the agriculture that comes even today from the Jordan Valley is, is very fertile and grows a lot of different crops and uh, crops and uh, plants and things. This area on the seaside is, is kind of like a, uh, it used to be a swamp, more or less. Over time, when Israel went in there, they drained the swamps and, you know, kind of fixed the land and made it more usable. But in the old days, this was not really the most usable land in the world. Down here, the Philistines, who you may have heard of, they were down in this area, and they were constantly at war with Israel as, as King David and them were you know, having their battles. Phoenicians up top, Tyre and Sidon and all that would have been up here. And uh, this area up around the Sea of Galilee tended to be more lush, more rain. There was this big valley in this area you may have heard of, the, the uh, Armageddon. Have you ever heard of that? Medigo. So that's just a big, huge valley in here. A lot of wars were fought in there because you've got a big valley in, in and like the Egyptians and the Hittites came together and clashed. And, you know, so it was kind of a symbolic of, of major battles happening in that area. Because the other area is illy, hilly and, and deserty. And the east side tended to be pretty deserty in this area. So, but anyway, that gives you a little bit of a background of the geography and the, the place that they were going into and they were inheriting. So, with this, we have Joshua who, when he was entering into the land, this would have been between 1250 and 1225 B.C. or 1200 B.C. We're not exactly sure, but in that range. And then there was a period of that would be called the judges. And the judges weren't judges like the Supreme Court or anything like that. What they were were people that God would give certain authority, put a spirit in, so they would lead the Israelites 
to some sort of victory to overcome some sort of oppression. And then afterwards, then things would settle down again. But then um, Israel would kind of fall back into bad ways. And so then God would lift up another judge. And uh, these particular judges would be like little warrior judges or something like that. And little leaders more so than um, like judges like we think of judges. So there's an overall theme in all these books from Joshua through through Samuel and first and second Kings. And that is when there's fidelity to the law and the covenant, then there's peace and prosperity and Israel does well. When there's infidelity, then there's oppression and there's punishment. And one of the images used is almost like adultery, you know, that, that when there's infidelity, it's almost like a marriage infidelity. And so then um, there's certain kinds of oppression and punishment that comes out of that. But then later, God restores his relationship with his people. And then you once again have that fidelity and peace and prosperity again. So it, it, it draws a pretty clear uh, and direct connection between do things right, things will go well. Do things wrong, then things will not go well. You know, it tend to be pretty black and white in that. There was the overall pattern that uh, Israel sins. All right, when Israel sinned, more often than not, it was because they were assimilating competing Canaanite cultures and religions. So they were adopting and synchronizing what they found around them. And so think, of, think about Israel. For the first time, they're entering into this land. It's like, okay, we need to make a living here, so we need to have crops, and we need to harvest those crops. We don't necessarily know how to do crops so well, But those Canaanites have been here forever, and they know how to do that. How do they do it? Well, they have these certain prayers and these certain sacrifices they offer to their gods. So maybe if we want good crops, we need to get those Canaanite gods on our side so we can get good crops. So you see the logic in this? And then, of course, God says, no, that's not how it's supposed to work. You know, so. But there was this allure that would happen with the Canaanite religion, culture, and their gods, and the Israelites. And so the leaders of Israel were trying to keep people faithful to the original covenant, but people, like people are, can so easily stray. And then sometimes even the leaders themselves stray. And the uh, different kings and leaders are evaluated oftentimes on how well they hold fast to the, the ways of God, and they are punished for the times that they stray from that. So again, Israel sins, God punishes Israel, Israel repents, God delivers Israel, and then there's peace again. All right, so this is especially prominent in the book of Judges. They sin, God punishes, Israel repents, God delivers. And then there's peace again until they sin again. You know, well, you know how we are, we don't learn, we just kind of keep going. All right, let's get beyond this. Okay, so the book of Joshua, it's a description on how God was faithful in providing a homeland for his people. It's, it's written as a Deuter, Deuteronomist history, and so it continues from Deuteronomy through First and Second Kings, the uh, majority of the style tends to be in line with the book of Deuteronomy, so they will call it oftentimes a Deuteronomic history. Uh, 
And so the theme is the conquest of the promised land because God gave the, it to them. God is the warrior who fights on behalf of his people, even if the people are the ones who are the ones engaged in battle. It demonstrates God's fidelity in giving his people a homeland in accordance with the Sinai promise. It encourages obedience to the covenant from the people. And so the division of the book, you've got chapters 1 through 12, which is the conquest of Canaan. And by the way, I'm using uh, interconnected words. Canaan was what uh, Israel was referred to originally, and then Israel became what it is now what we refer to it, but it's the same thing. But sometimes the Israelites even used to refer to Canaan as Canaan, even though it was at that time reconquered for, for Israel. So, but those words are pretty much interchangeably. It's just Canaan's the older word and Israel's the newer. So you've got the division, chapters 13 through 22, of the land among the 12 tribes. And then chapters 23 through 24... That's the return of those Transjordan tribes. Those, those are the tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. And then Joshua's speeches and farewell. So basically, you've got Joshua. They cross the Jordan. And then there's a miracle that happens that the Jordan stops flowing. And then they cross and go over. And then they bring in the tribes on the east because they agree that they would fight with the Israelites. So they go in. They reconquer the land, and then the tribes on the east go back on the other side of the Jordan. So this is the gist of the, of the actual book. The way it's written, it makes it seem as almost like it's a blitzkrieg, you know, like, like Israel crosses the Jordan, and they just conquer all this land, and it's all taken care of. And uh, theologically, that's what happened. Israel moved in and served the God who brought them in. But as you know, history is always messier than, than a theological explanation of what happened. And so what you have going on here is that Israel went in and they would have these particular cities that they would conquer, but there were other cities that continued to exist that were the bigger cities. And those bigger cities, they actually didn't conquer, but they lived almost side by side for a while. And then over time, it it took until the monarchy before all these different tribes were really overcome in the period of the judges. Um, Someone explained it once. It's like, If you have, for example, okay, they came in and they conquered America, but they left out New York and Chicago and this kind of thing, right? So you got these big cities that were still there. Um, But where Israel originally settled is more in the mountainous areas and the smaller towns. And so a lot of the battles that are described are more of the smaller towns. There are some exceptions to that, but that's kind of the general norm. So think about this as they go in and they're settling and they're conquering, but it didn't happen in a day. And it happened over a longer period of time. And there were some ups and downs that happened along the way. Um, You will notice that in the book of Joshua, they talk about putting them under the ban. So they'd conquer the city and they would say, and then they had to put them under the ban. What that means is they killed everything and everyone. And that was, uh, they would go and they'd conquer a city and they would kill everyone and everything. And then they would go to a new city and they'd do the same thing. And this is the way it's explained in, in the book of Joshua. And so people naturally say, well, why? Why didn't God just say, go ahead and conquer them, but don't kill them? Um, well, there are a few reasons for that. But again, this is when we need to take our 21st century American mindset and suspend that for a while and try to think about the world with an ancient mindset. In the ancient world, 
there were battles and wars all the time. It wasn't unusual for when, if you want to conquer a land, you can't coexist with the people that you're conquering. So it's going to be us or them. And so if you show leniency or if you don't fully conquer them, then there will come a time when they will rebel and conquer you. So part of it's just the uh, military state of the world at the time. Um, I think the, the statistic I heard is like one out of 17 people would die in war during that time. You know, So it was uh, quite a bit of war that was going on at that time. Another thing to keep in mind is some of this is symbolic and theological, meaning that Israel, like I mentioned, needed to go into the Holy Land, and they, didn't, they couldn't assimilate those Canaanite ways. And so in order for that to happen, they have to assert their authority and move in with a position of power. And also it demonstrates that God is literally with his people when God is so uh, strong and he, he not only delivers his people, but he helps them to greatly conquer these other tribes that should have had power over them. So it's part of that lesser conquering the greater thing. And, and that's kind of written into the text as well. Historically, they have shown that there were wars that happened in these areas at that time. There were cities that were burned, and, and it showed that there was some uh, warlike conquering and uh, battles that took place. And at the same time, though, it does show that it didn't happen all at once, and it wasn't so systematic that, that we kind of read about when we're reading through the book of Joshua. And a lot of it was something that there were coexisting um, cities as well as the bigger cities that were living side by side. And some of them were conquered much later. Like David, for example, David was the one that went into Jerusalem and conquered the Jebusites and then set up Jerusalem as the capital and then eventually um, brought up the Ark of the Covenant. But that was, that was like 200 years later than the time of Judges where it implies that they just went through and conquered everything real quick. So anyway, you get an idea here. It's like it happens in waves. It happens over time. It's not necessarily so black and white. And although they're talking about it as if they came in and wiped everyone else and just replanted it over the top, a lot of that's for theological reasons, showing that God was with them and he was helping them to uh, inherit the land that was theirs and the land that was holy because it is God's own land. Are you with me in all that? Yeah. Yeah. Kill the whatever. Right, it's happening in the Middle East right now. And so um, it, it just seems like there's such a, a disconnect. In terms yeah, and. Of the way they live versus the Word of God and the way we understand the new, the new covenant. Yeah, and keep in mind that, as I mentioned, that morality is not something that happens all at once either, that it, it was going to have to develop over centuries, and the prophets. So. Once they, they settle in the land, there, there is a morality that says you can't molest the alien. You need to protect the stranger. You need to welcome the visitor. And you can't take advantage of people. And, you know, so some of that was getting worked in there. 
But I think it was more of a theological thing. The Jews needed to move out of Egypt and move into Israel, showing that God was the one who did it. And so the way that it was written demonstrates that. Even if, I, like again, I have to say, we need to get out of our 21st century mindset and then try to look at it from the mindset of an ancient that they wouldn't have had a problem with the understanding that we came in and we conquered them completely. And boy, isn't that a wonderful thing. Now, from God's point of view, he had to train his people over time. And it took thousands of years until he revealed the fullness of revelation in Jesus and his greater teachings of making peace and this sort of thing. So, so part of it, we have to just kind of suspend our morality as we know it. And, and try to understand it more within the long-term plan of salvation history. And to be honest, it's like I've been doing this for a long time. And although I don't like the idea of killing and all that stuff, I, I don't see another way that God could have moved people out of Egypt and inherited the promised land um, by gradually trying to make peace treaties. Not in the ancient world. It just wouldn't have worked. And so part of it, I think, might be pragmatic that in order for this to happen, it's kind of a consequence, more is a divine mandate. So I don't know. You can make your own uh, decisions on why it happened, but, but I think the theological reason is there had to be a way that Israel moved in and settled the land, and they were not being oppressed or slaves to a new uh, culture or people as they did it, because otherwise they would have moved out of Egypt and then inherited a land, and then all of a sudden they're back in the hands of slavery of the new culture. And so that would have made it seem that God didn't bring them to possess the land like they needed to do according to his promise. So anyway, another long solution. And, and there was one commentator from the uh, 1200s, actually, that I don't know why I remembered this, but I was reading obscure stuff at one time. And he said, well, God is the author of life, and so God creates life and God takes life away. And so if he decides that the Canaanites needed to um, go in order for the Israelites to come in. That's his prerogative. Well, anyway, it seems a black and white kind of understanding, but there, you know, but there is some truth to it that that one way or another, they had to be able to settle into the land. No, I know, but Jesus is very clear about what we're supposed to do and not do. And you, you back up a thousand years from the time of Jesus, then they had a different set of standards that the morality had not developed. We needed the prophets, actually. The prophets of the 700s and the 600s in that era, like Amos, for example, you know, great moral prophets. But that was yet to come. And so, so it's kind of like a, a little kid. You just say this and that, but you don't give them the fullness, and then as they grow up, you're giving them more and more until they're ready for the truth, and then you have to sit down and talk with them. So this is very, very early on. And uh, if you ever want to be horrified, read what the Assyrians used to do. And we'll talk a little bit about that in the next week, but the Assyrians used to come in, and they would not only conquer, but they would put up poles, and they would stack people on top of them and put to cut off their heads and put them up, and they'd skin them alive, and they did all kinds of crazy, terrible things. And so, worse than ISIS, you know, makes ISIS look like they're a gentleman, you know. But the point is, the ancient world had a, a savagery about them that uh, 
we still have in some ways, but um, in the United States, we're far more sanitized about these things. But, but anyway, I don't know. And they had a sacredness of life because it was built into the Ten Commandments as well as many of the other teachings. But I think it was just, how are we going to get the Israelites into the Promised Land? I think that was the main thing. Because, and also, remember, it's okay to exaggerate. So they would exaggerate this to show the dominance that God gave them over the people that they shouldn't have had dominance over. And so it was just one way they showed that. So once they got settled in, then a lot of these laws and rules um, did become much more compassionate in our eyes. But but anyway, it's kind of the process of the way things happen. So some of it's exaggerated. Some of it's happened over a long period of time. And some of it was just because it sort of had to happen in order for the Israelites to go in and settle in the land. And then also keep in mind that when this was getting written, they were looking back after King David just kind of conquered all the, the area and united Israel as a nation. And so at that point, they were looking back at their history and drawing some conclusions about how God had to basically gave a heavenly mandate for this to happen. I'm getting ahead of myself again. But. On a 21st century question, I guess, how did the kings and whatnot recognize the Jews? Do they wear a yellow symbol on their... <laughs> Oh, how did they recognize the difference between the Canaanites and the Jews? Yeah, in other words, they heard them out. Well, they didn't wear, like, yellow or anything. They, <laughs> they had different customs and styles in, in a different accent. They had different uh, mannerisms, and they had a different way of living. So they would have known. Armies would, I mean, for all time, armies have assembled and fought. And uh, there was some confusion, obviously, but they still figure out a way to fight. Yeah, but the Canaanites did too. So, but keep in mind, some cities never were conquered. And then other ones drew terms and they had negotiations and treaties. And then some cities existed alongside Israel. And there were still laws to protect the weak and the vulnerable and the aliens, even in the midst of it all. So what that, and that's looking in Joshua as well. And so what that does say is that although there tends to be an image that is presented in the book, the reality tends to be something that is different than that kind of overly exaggerated image. But the overly exaggerated image, once again, shows a theological significance for the power that God gave the Israelites to go through and inherit the land. Even that in the process of it, other cities continued to survive and uh, some drew up partnerships and some of that's talked about as well. Cities existed alongside, and there were still laws of protection for visitors and orphans and aliens and that sort of thing. So anyway, but that's kind of the idea there. I'm just going to get through. Okay, so Joshua... He was the aide to Moses at Sinai, and then he led the battle of the 
Amalekites in Exodus 17, and he was one of the scouts, he and Caleb, which were um, saying that they could go in and take the land, and they were the only ones that weren't scared to do it. So he became the leader. Now, there were a few things that happened in some of this you may have heard of before. So Rahab, she was the prostitute that hung the, uh, the, the cloth over the side of the hill of Jericho so that her family would be spared when the, when the Israelites came in and took over Jericho. And then she gets written in as part of the offspring uh, for Ruth, the book of Ruth, in addition to being listed in the genealogy of Matthew. You know, so, so here's a foreigner who was a prostitute who gets incorporated into the people of Israel. You know, just kind of an interesting thing. You have the uh, crossing of the Jordan, symbolic of the crossing of the Red Sea. Then you have the fall of Jericho. And then you have this command not to take anything out of the city. And then there was some who did. Now that reason was, it has to go with that, you know, when you go in, you cannot assimilate those practices that were the Canaanite practices. So that's, that the reason why is because they need to live the law and not start taking in all these other customs that are coming in. The uh, conquest, as I talk, I already talked about that already. There, there, in chapter 22, there's an interesting little side note, and that was that the, those on the eastern side. Um, started to build an altar and then they're saying, wait a minute, you can't do this. You know, this is, this is not legal. And so then they eventually decided that, well, it was not going to be a permanent altar. And so they ended up not doing it. Now that reflects eventually what will happen in the kingdom is that Jerusalem is going to be the center where all sacrifice has to take place. So there's the little premonitions of that happening, even as Israel goes into, uh, they go through and conquer the land and start settling in there. Um, later on in the book of Kings, there will be different cities that will try to have alternative places of worship in opposition to the worship in Jerusalem. Uh, but in the meantime, even now, there's a bit of a, uh, a theological preference that the worship needs to happen in Jerusalem. And that goes back to King David and Solomon, who centralized the worship in Jerusalem as well. All right, so in the last seven minutes, I'm going to stop here, I think. Uh, you know what? Uh, you know what? Most of this I've already talked about, so I'm just going to go through it real quick since we've got about five minutes, and that way I won't be behind in the next Friday. Now, remember, next Friday we're going to be meeting Friday night in the church, and then Saturday we'll be back into here. Okay, so Judges has that same pattern. Israel sin, God punishes, Israel repents, Israel's delivered by a judge, and then there's peace where the judge lives, and then they sin, and then it starts all over again. The main point is not to follow those Canaanite culture, cultural practices and religious practices, but to main, remain firm with following the ways of God that the Israelites have as part of their covenant agreement. 
And so you have these exploits of the judges in saving Israel. So there are stories, individual stories of these particular judges that get raised up. Um, most of these judges, they weren't necessarily people of importance or power position, but God raises them up. And then once they accomplish their person, then it goes back down. So the point is, God is king, and the 12 tribes of Israel might have judges that are raised up, but theologically there's this ideal that God is the king, and there is no king of Israel like those other nations, but God will raise up who he needs to so that they can continue to thrive and survive in the cities and in the lands that God gave them. Uh, But at the same time, they will need judges to help and assist when the time is necessary. So this was the first ideal that they have. The king would come later, but in this time, it's called the period of the judges. And part of it was chapters 1 and 2 talk about the incomplete conquest that opens the way to corruption of Israel by the pagan forces and neighbors. So um, because the conquest didn't completely happen, then all of a sudden you've got the Canaanite ways creeping in again. And it's causing Israel to sin and turn away from God. And then later, chapters 3 through 16, you've got the exploits of the judges who were raised up by God to save repentant Israel from destruction. And so again, God is, is using these judges to try to bring them back to where they need to be. And then chapters 17 through 21, it's just an appendix that... Um, describes why the tribe and how the tribe of Dan moved from south to north and how Benjamin was relocated as well. And so, you know, it has more to do with, you know, how did the tribes end up where they were? And, of course, the context of this, there's conquest by these Israelites who need to continue to, you know, fight the neighbors around them in order to keep the land that God gave them. So there are five major judges, Ehud, Barak, Deborah, Barak and Deborah are kind of together, actually. And then there's Gideon, Jephthah, Samson. And then you've got the minor judges. Othoniel could be a minor or major. Could go either way. But anyway, you've got the minor judges. Ibzan, Elon, Abdon, Tola, uh, Jair, and then Shamgar. What's interesting, Deborah... Um, is kind of an interesting one because she was one of the judges that although she didn't actually, um, she wasn't actually the, the warrior, she in a sense was because she was needed to be there uh, together with Barak or it would not have worked, you know. So anyway, that was kind of a different one. And so Where's the one? There was one that was kind of interesting. There's more than one. Okay, Samson. You, um, Hebrew and Canaanite names, mostly. When uh, you all heard of Samson and Delilah in that story, that's kind of a popular one. Um, Samson had made a vow, and that vow was that he would follow this Nazarite vow, which means that he would have to like not cut his hair and he would have to eat certain things. That's in the image, actually, of John the Baptist, who kind of follows a similar type of vow. And uh, anyway, in the image of that, but not exactly. But the problem with Samson 
wasn't necessarily that he just cut his hair, but he forsake his vow. And so that's kind of the teaching element of that, is that when people make vows and promises, they have to keep the vows and promises. Then there was, uh, I wonder, because I think the name was Eliud, if I got that right. forever now. You know, when you try to find something quickly, you never can. All right, so there's the story. I think it was Eliud. And so there was uh, the, uh, the the warrior who came after him. And he was left-handed, and he had the dagger on the inside of his right thigh. And when the time came, there was the leader of the city, and he was very fat. So he stabbed him in the stomach, and then he ran off into the night. So anyway, what's it? Was that Eliud? He killed him. Yeah. But, but the interesting thing about it is that the name of the guy Eliud really means fat cow. (laughs) So all these little things that I may not remember where specifically it was so I could look it up, but anyway, but there are some of these stories. the, The reason why I mentioned that is some of these stories, although they do describe things, we read them is uh, it's like okay, kind of mean, stark facts. When oftentimes they're written almost like a little bit of folklore, and there's some humor, uh, humor built into it, and it helps to as people would have heard these, they would have heard these little double uh, meanings and and uh, little humoral things, humorous things that would have been included within it, and so. One way we can read some of these stories is is by not necessarily reading them as like just strict serious history, but also understanding that these are almost like you know folklore in a sense that they describe more than just events that uh, they they kind of do it in a style which is kind of like literature so anyway that's true as well all right i'm going to stop now just because if i don't we're never going to get to the next part. Okay, so next Friday, we'll meet in the church at 6 o'clock, and then we'll have that one over there. And we'll start, for those of you who want to catch up, I think we'll start with Ruth, talk about that real quick, and then we'll go to Samuel, and then into Kings. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. May God be with you and continue to bless you as you continue to deepen your love of God's Word in your prayer and in your study. If you would like further information, please go to our website at shepherdcatholic.com. You will find some notes and some references and additional things to help you in your love of the scripture. May God bless you.